The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. So here we find ourselves in John chapter 17, and we've really slowed down and taken our time in this section, and with good reason, here in John 17, Jesus is praying. And anytime God prays, you ought to bend your ear and listen. We all want to know how to pray more effective prayers to get our prayers answered. And so here in John 17, Jesus is praying. We have before us a perfect prayer. And in the first portion of this prayer, Jesus prays about his relationship with the Father. And then in the next section of the prayer, which we looked at, Just prior to my vacation, a couple of weeks ago, Jesus widens the circle of his focus and he begins to pray for those 11 guys who were standing around him, his disciples. And he had some really wonderful things to pray for them and over them that applied to us. And if you haven't heard those studies, go back and and listen to them. They're on the web, on YouTube, Maranatha, uh, our own YouTube channel. And, And then this evening... Jesus fans out even broader, and now he begins to pray, for listen to this, in verse 20 he tells us, all those who will come to believe in him. It's as though he peered through the hourglass of the future and saw all the people who had come to faith and come to believe in him as their Lord and Savior. This includes the last 2,000 years and all the people beginning with, you know, the 11 disciples and then the 3,000 who were added to the church on the day of Pentecost and, and everything that followed in the book of Acts as the gospel spread out and the fire spread until it landed in our laps. And Jesus is praying for all of the believers over the, all the last two millennia, including us. So what did Jesus pray for us? Are you interested to know? Let's go ahead and take a look, beginning in verse 20. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. These verses, we're standing on hollowed ground here once again, and they reveal Jesus' heart for his big C church. When I talk about the big C church, I'm not talking about our local church, but I'm talking about all the churches and all the believers over all the church age. Let's remember at this moment that the church was something that was born in God's heart. It was, it was his idea. It wasn't man's idea or creation. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. 
He said the gates of hell won't prevail against it. They won't be able to stop it. Then he purchased the church with his own shed blood. And here, here we get to hear him pray for the church. Now, in praying for all future believers, Jesus is making an assumption. He's operating under the assumption that his disciples will be successful in sharing the gospel message. So he says all those who will come to faith through their message. Now, at this point in time, when Jesus says these words, that success seemed far from certain. (laughs) Consider the following. In just a few moments' time, Jesus is going to be approached by Roman soldiers and, and religious leaders. And in that moment, in his greatest hour of need, all the disciples are going to abandon him and flee from him. Things didn't get better from there. In the days following his crucifixion, the disciples all huddled together behind locked doors and closed windows in an upper room. Why? They were hunkered down, afraid that Jesus' fate might become theirs too if they weren't careful. Then something happened to these downtrodden, distraught depressed, scared disciples that changed everything. What happened? They had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and it changed everything. Now, that didn't mean that they didn't still have obstacles or challenges to overcome. I mean, they were small or few in number. They lacked what most people would consider the proper training for such a large task. They had no money or assets or leadership structure or seemingly any chance of success. And yet, Somehow, against all odds, this ragtag group of fishermen and zealots and tax collectors managed to turn their world upside down with the message. They started there in Jerusalem, and then when persecution arose, they spread out to the greater region of Judea and Samaria, and ultimately took the gospel within the first hundred years as far as Egypt, India, Britain, and Ireland, among other places. And since that time, the people that they entrusted the message to were able to take the baton of faith and pass it carefully down to each next generation. And this has been going on for the last 2,000 years. And can I just say that their faithfulness to carry this message of the gospel forward is ultimately why all of us or any of us are here, I should say. At some point, someone, somewhere, shared the gospel with you. And where the story goes from here, now that you've received it, where it goes from here, that's entirely up to us, isn't it? As others have astutely observed, Christianity is always, ever, only one generation away from extinction. You see, we've received the gospel, but we need to run with it hard and fast and then pass it on to those coming up behind us. Now, thankfully, we're not alone in this endeavor, right? Jesus has prayed for his church. So what did he pray for the future generation of believers that includes us? And what we see in the text is he prays for three things. The first one, if you want to note this, is Jesus prays that we would be one. And we see this in verses 21 through 23. Now, there are so many things that he could have prayed for in this moment, right? He could have prayed that we would have great power or that we would be given positions of influence or that we would enjoy wonderful success or that we would live pain-free lives. 
But instead, he chose to focus his prayer on this theme of unity. He mentions it no less than five times in this chapter. Father, I pray that they would be one as we are one. Now, why would Jesus focus on unity of all the myriad of subjects that he could have prayed for? Well, we don't have to guess or wonder. He tells us twice in verse 21 and again in verse 23 where he says, then the world will know that you sent me. Interesting, isn't it? Evidently, there's something about a unified church that serves as a powerful attractant to those on the outside. And God really wants this world to be saved. And I don't want to just breeze past that point. The fact that God wants the world to be saved is something I think a lot of people miss. There are many who live under the mistaken notion that that God's mad at the whole world and he can't wait to just kind of judge everybody like he's just up in heaven like tossing a lightning bolt waiting to smite somebody or he's got a smite button, a smoke button. You know, like that's God's mood. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible says clearly that he's not willing that any should perish. Can somebody say amen to that? Praise the Lord. That's 2 Peter 3, 9. Let's go ahead and read 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is in your notes. It says this. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved. Somebody say amen again. Amen. Amen. He wants all people to be saved. And let's pick up there. And to come to a knowledge of the truth. The secret Greek meaning behind the word all is all. All means all, and that's all that all means. Now, the the, the supreme expression, an ultimate proof of God's heart or disposition towards the world, if you've ever wrestled with that, is the cross. You go to the cross and you see how God feels about this world. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die as a sacrifice in our place on the cross. And although the cross is the ultimate expression of God's love and the main mechanism or means by which he draws people to himself, he says, if I be lifted up, speaking of the cross, I will draw all men to myself. By no means is that the only way in which God draws people to himself. He also uses the church. He uses us. And that's what makes unity so powerful. You see, what unity does is it takes an invisible God and it makes him visible to the eyes of the watching world. You see, we can't see God. God is invisible, but the world can see us. And what happens is when they see a church that selflessly loves one another, gives of themselves, serves one another, when, you, when it sees people from different places and different cultures and different backgrounds and, and different places, they all come together and they gather in one name and they worship one God, it stands out. It's powerful. Now the devil, he knows how powerful a united church can be. That's why he works so hard to divide us. He knows that if we're distracted and using all of our energy in fighting or fighting with one another, that that we'll be powerless and we'll be unable to fulfill our mission or carry out our purpose. We need to be united to do that. You see, standing united together is what makes us strong. Think of it like this. A twig all by itself, pretty easy to snap, right? Just take it in your fingers. 
But you start adding to that twig other twigs, and you get a big bundle of twigs about yay big. Go ahead and try to snap that. You can't break it, and that's like us. We need to be unified because it attracts people to Jesus. Jesus says, when they're one, then the world will know that you sent me. But I want to acknowledge something. Wanting unity is one thing, but walking it out is an entirely different matter, isn't it? (laughs) It's not natural. It doesn't come easily to us. This is why Paul in Ephesians 4 says that we must strive for unity. I mean, getting everyone to say amen to this idea that we should all be unified, that's a great idea and it looks good on paper and everybody says they want unity until someone's preferences differ from yours. That's when things start to get ugly. That's where the rubber meets the road, if you will. I mean, I like my worship music one way and one volume level. Can we just go there? And, and you have your own set of preferences regarding worship and song choice and, and style. And, and you like one set of preaching and your spouse likes a different style of preaching. And, and maybe you have one set of views about the Holy Spirit and you have another set of views. Or you have one set of views about end times and, and how things are going to play out in the last days and the book of Revelation and what the pictures mean. And, and somebody in sitting at the other end of the same row has a whole different set of opinions or beliefs. And this is where it gets tricky. So how do we come together when we have all of these differences? Well, one thing that's helpful to remember is that the things we have in common will always outweigh whatever differences of opinion we may have. Somebody say amen to that. And we have far more in common than we have in difference. Let's go ahead and read Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, looking at some of the things we have in common. Let's read this out loud. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Notice how many times Paul uses the word one. Think of all the oneness that we share. There is so much for us to lean into, so much for us to grab hold of, so much that we have in common. And yet, while it's true that unity is precious, it's powerful, and it's worth fighting for, let us not make the mistake of thinking that it means it's to be pursued at all costs. You see, there are times when it becomes needful and even necessary to break away and divide. Where would that line be where we're supposed to divide? Listen, this is where. We're to divide whenever a church or an individual embraces views or doctrines that run contrary to sound biblical teaching. Wherever that happens, wherever someone steps across the line of what God has declared to be true in his word, we must divide. Somebody say amen. Now, the trick is learning to understand the difference between those doctrines that are essential and the the things that are non-essential issues. And so how do we do that? Well, 
There's a whole lot of things that the Bible is really clear on. And if the Bible is clear on something, if the Bible calls something a sin, then we're going to call it a sin. And that's just as clear as I can be about it. And God has clear views about men and women and marriage and sexuality and, and a host of other topics that are all hot button topics in our culture right now. And so we, are, we have to draw this line of division on we stand with the word. Let God be true in every man a liar. Now, if on the other hand, it's an issue of style or preference or opinion, then there's room for healthy discussion and debate. We don't need to divide over it. I've always appreciated what one saint said from a long time ago. His name was St. Augustine, and he summarized it like this. He said, in essentials, there should be unity. In non-essentials, there should be liberty. But in all things, let there be charity. Don't you love that? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, let love guide you. Somebody say amen again. Amen. So, so unity. You know, we are called to this unity. And Jesus prays that we would be one. But now let's talk about the basis of our unity. And Jesus points to this in verse 21 when he says, May they also be in us. Or I'm sorry, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So our unity, the basis for our unity is what we see being expressed at all times and in all ways in the Trinity, in the Godhead. You see, God at all times exists in perfect unity within himself. This is so interesting. If you go back to the Old Testament, there is this religious prayer that every Jew prays at least a couple of times a day. It's known as the Shema, and it is regarded as the, the most important prayer in the Jewish faith, and it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And that prayer begins with the great declaration that the Lord, the Lord our God, is one. And they made this statement against the backdrop of a pluralistic society in which all of the cultures around them and surrounding them were polytheistic. And so this really distinguished the Jewish people that they only had one God. <clears throat> and yet, what's interesting is that when you look at the Greek, I'm sorry, the Hebrew word for one there, when they say the Lord is one, it's the Hebrew word echad. And it literally speaks of a compound unity. So it speaks of a plurality within a unity. So even as the Jews were announcing their devotion to the one true God, there is a hint of the Trinity embedded within their prayer. You have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Three distinct persons, but one essence. You say, how do you figure? I mean, one plus one plus one equals three, not one. I would say that's true. But one times one times one equals one still, right? So it works mathematically, and I can't explain it to you. I wish I could. But God is three persons, one essence. And within the Trinity, each member defers to one another. They honor one another, and they point to one another. So you'll, fee, you'll see throughout Scripture the Spirit pointing to the Son, and the Son pointing to His Father, and the Father pointing back at His Son and saying, listen to Him. They're not the same. They have unique 
distinctions and roles and wills, but they worked in perfect harmony and unison. So as we think about this whole idea of unity and how it works, I want you to remember something else. Oftentimes we confuse unity with uniformity, but they aren't the same thing. Unity is not sameness. You see, God doesn't have a cookie cutter that he uses to stamp out exact replicas of one another. We serve and worship a God who delights in diversity, praise the Lord. In fact, when you get to heaven, everybody's not gonna look the same. Some people, they say, you know, God must be colorblind. Yeah, and it sounds good because he's not focused on racial issues and these kinds of things. But that's not true, it's not biblical. God's not colorblind. He sees all of the colors and he embraces all of them. In fact, when you get to heaven, we see the the scene described for us in Revelation and, and John says that he sees men and women from every tongue and kindred and tribe and nation on earth surrounding the throne and casting down their crowns and worshiping the Lamb of God together. There is beauty in diversity. Now that's different than the kind of unity you see expressed in this world. The world, it really only knows one kind of unity. It's a a homogenous kind of thing that's really more about shared affinities than it is anything else. So as long as you look like me, think like me, believe like me, vote like me, then we can have unity on, on those issues. But biblical unity is different. It takes this scattered group of individuals who, outside of this context, might not have much, if anything, in common. And yet we're all brought together and we find unity under the banner of his love over us. I mean, just look at the colorful cast of characters that Jesus chose to be his disciples. He chose a zealot and he chose a tax collector. Now, these guys would have been like, water and oil. They, the two didn't mix. They would have hated each other in the natural, but Jesus brings them together under the banner of his love, and it works. In fact, the Greek word for unity is katarizo, and it speaks of gluing different materials together. I like that. Take a little of this, a little of that, and you put them together. Rather than serving as roadblocks to unity, it turns out that thinking differently, looking differently, and feeling differently are ingredients of it. I like what Dr. Tony Evans has to say on this point. He he says, and I quote, the definition of unity is oneness of purpose, not sameness of being. Isn't that good? Let me say it again. The definition of unity is oneness of purpose, not sameness of being. So we're not all the same. Think of it like this. I like analogies. So think of a football team. Football team has a number of different types of players that make it up. They don't all look the same. The quarterback doesn't look anything like the wide receiver who doesn't look anything like the offensive lineman who doesn't look anything like the the left tackle and the nose tackle and all, all the rest, the punter. You have different body types and different styles and different skill sets. Some are tall and fast and others are big and strong and each player has an assigned role on the team and specific tasks and responsibilities that they have to carry out. Some play only on offense, some others only on defense and so on and so forth. Yet while there are all these teams within teams and they might even have their own coach, a special teams coach, offensive coordinator and so on, they all have one shared purpose. They exist for one unified goal. And what is it? 
to win the game. That's why we play, to win the game, to put more points on our scoreboard than they have on theirs. And that's like the church. We have different roles, different gifts, different functions, but we're all part of the same team, the same body, if you want to switch metaphors there. And we all exist for the same purpose of glorifying God, of knowing him and making him known in this world. What we're doing right now is kind of like the huddle. And we gather in here to huddle up and we call the plays, but the huddle is not the game. You know, if the players stand around for too long in the huddle, what happens? All the people start booing. Why? Because they didn't come to watch the team huddle up. They came to watch them play the game. And so too, I think the, the, the last thing this world needs is for the church to keep huddling up. Let's huddle up. Let's huddle up. It's time for us to run some plays. They need to see the church of Jesus Christ made up of men and women from every background and every culture coming together, uniting, putting aside their selfish differences and their opinions and preferences in favor of accomplishing the kingdom task that has been set before us. So Jesus prays that we would be one. And the second thing he prays, and we see this in verse 24, is that we would be with him. So he prays that we would be one. That's his first prayer for the church, big C. And the second request is that we would be with him. And here he says in verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me and to see my glory, the glory you gave me because you love me before the creation of the world. I love this request. You know, it's natural, I think, for, for people who love one another to want to be together, right? And there are times for various reasons that couples will have to spend time apart from one another. Maybe you are married to a, a spouse or, or have a son or a daughter who's serving right now in our armed forces overseas, and we thank you for their service and your sacrifice as well. But during those seasons, those extended periods of time where you're separated from the ones you love, oftentimes you'll, you'll correspond with one another, whether it's a handwritten note or a text or, or a video chat or whatever. And what do you do? You pour out your heart and you say, I can't wait till we're together again. That's natural. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's expressing his desire to want to be with the ones he loves. Now, here's what's really cool about this. This is a prayer request. But what precedes this is a promise. Jesus, after telling his disciples, I'm going to be leaving you guys, he makes a promise. Remember John 14 when we were there eons ago? And he said, I'm going to my father's house and I'm going to be preparing a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And if I go, I will come back so that you can be with me. And so Jesus made a promise. And I just remind you of something. It is impossible for him to lie. He promises, I'm coming for you. And then here he makes a prayer. He offers a request. And he says, I want to be with you. And can I just remind you that every prayer Jesus prays because he's God gets answered. Hallelujah. So he makes a promise that he'll be with us. He prays a prayer that he'll be with us. And then he pray, pays the price so he can be with us. And we see him on the cross stretching out his arms and paying the price for our sins to, to secure our ticket to heaven so that we can be with him forever. So that should give you ultimate confidence that this promise, this prayer request will come true. You're going to be with him soon. 
That should get you excited. And the other thing he says here is, and I want them to see my glory. This is something that the disciples, a few of them at least, got to experience. It was Peter, James, and John that Jesus took to the top of this mountain called the Mount of Transfiguration. And there, in their presence, he was literally transfigured before them. And it says his, his face shined like the sun. And in that instant, his clothing became white like light. It became translucent. It was as if for a brief moment, the glory that was up until that moment veiled and hidden behind the veneer of flesh was allowed for a brief few moments to shine forth. And, and I love what my dad used to always say about this point. He would say that the real miracle wasn't that Jesus was transfigured in their presence like that. The real miracle was that he was able to keep it hidden the rest of the time. And so they got that taste of his glory. Moses got a a taste of it too. In Exodus chapter 33, if you recall that story, he had seen God move and do miracles and, and perform signs and wonders in his presence and it created a hunger and a thirst and a desire in his heart to know more, to see more, to experience more. Not just the signs and the wonders, but the God behind those things. And so he says, show me your glory. And God responded to Moses, no man can see my glory and live, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you just a peek of the afterglow or the after effects, the chemtrails, if you will, of my glory. And so he sticks Moses in the cleft of a rock and he covers him with his hand and then he passes before him and he declares his name. I am the Lord God, uh, abounding in compassion and mercy and so on and so forth. And then he just cracks his fingers just for a second so Moses can see the after effects of his glory. And then he moves on. And, and from that experience alone, we read in the Bible that Moses' face shined. <laughs> for a series of weeks. That's just from this much experience of his glory. And how incredible is it to think that what they got a taste of, what they got a sample of, what Moses got a snippet of, we're gonna see soon. We're gonna see him face to face. I love that. Now that he's in heaven, his glory has been restored to him. And what they briefly saw, we will see in full. John says it like this in 1 John 3, 1. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We're going to be made like him. This is the thing about beholding glory. As you behold, you become like. Whatever you continually behold, you will eventually become. Does that make sense? Whatever you continually behold, you eventually become like. And so as we behold his glory, that glory gets into us. We're going to see his glory. But what's really crazy is that Jesus doesn't just pray that we would see his glory. He prays that we would share in that glory with him. In verse 22, he says that. I want them to share in my glory. And so Jesus prays first that we would be unified so that the world would know that we're his. And then secondly, he prays that we'd be with him. And we're waiting for the fulfillment of this promise. And I believe someday soon, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to call us home. And we're going to be caught up into the presence of the Lord forever. Hallelujah. 
And then thirdly and finally, his, his third request, we see it in verses 25 and 26. Jesus prays that we would be full of love. Look at verse 26 again. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Having already expressed his desire for oneness and his longing to be reunited with his disciples, the ones he loved, Jesus finishes the prayer by asserting the fact that he's going to continue to make the Father known. In other words, the real work of witnessing is something that Jesus does. And the way he plans on accomplishing this task is by filling, filling his disciples with his love and himself. All the things we've said up to this point are impossible in and of ourselves. Apart from the indwelling presence of the Lord and him putting his love in us, living in unity with one another isn't just hard or difficult or challenging. It's downright impossible. That's what makes what Jesus says here so wonderful. This is the glue that binds the rest of the prayer together. This is what makes unity possible. It's what makes our lives attractive. It's supernatural in its origin. It comes from heaven. It gets deposited into our hearts. And that's what the world sees when they see a church filled with people who are nothing like each other and may not even like each other, but they love each other because they're bound in unity under the banner of God's love. It speaks loudly and it attracts them to Jesus like moths are drawn to a flame. You know, during the first four centuries of Christianity's existence, history records how there were a series of, of plagues and famines that swept through the ancient Roman Empire. Now, each time one of these, these plagues or famines would hit, what, what the people would do in the city, which was densely populated, more so than any city in, in modern existence, they would, they would flee to the safety and security of the countryside, getting away from the sickness or the virus or whatever it was. However, there was one group that stayed, notably so, the Christians. When everyone else fled, they stayed and cared for the sick. They cared for those who were who were kicked out, the orphans, and that they tended to the dying, and they fed the hungry. Now, this, in large part, is what led to the rapid growth of the early church. One early church father said that because of their compassion, the way they loved one another, the way they treated one another, that the Christians, and I quote, deeds were on everyone's lips. And it led the unbelieving population to glorify the God of the Christians. It was Eusebius, an early church father, who said that. Non-Christians glorifying the God of the Christians. Now, at that same time, there was a Roman emperor named Julian. He was a pagan, and he didn't like what he saw happening. And so, writing to a pagan priest, he complained, and again, I quote, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans, that's the term he uses for Christians, observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. To another he wrote, they support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. He went on to propose that the pagan priests imitate the example of the Christians in their love and charity in an effort to bring about a revival of paganism in the empire. 
How funny is that? Can you imagine a church that is so impactful in its community, so radical in its generosity, so giving of its heart that it causes the non-believing government officials to start talking about how they can become more Christian in their activities, more like the church. This is God's vision for his people. This is what we've been called into, that we would experience unity, not just so that we can celebrate our unity, hey, we're unified, but so that the world will take notice. It's something that happens not so much in here, but it happens out there within the community. Real revival doesn't happen within the walls of the church, but it happens when the church gets outside the walls and starts infecting and impacting the culture to a degree that it is turned on its head. God wants us to be one. He wants us to be with him. And he wants us to be so full of love for one another and those who we don't even know, that the world looks on in wonder, in wide-eyed wonder, and wants to know this God who is so obviously real. What a glorious portrait Jesus has painted for, for our future. That this is there for the taking. If we want it, we can step into this. This is a, a reality that, that Jesus wants for us to experience. Lord, give us that heart for each other. Lord, give us that that, that, that heart for the lost, those on the outside. Jesus, give, her that, give us that hunger for your presence. To be filled with not just his love, but to be filled with him. This is how you grab hold of heaven and you bring it down to earth. You know what unity does is it gives this world a foretaste of what we're ultimately going to experience in heaven. You know, there are no denominations in heaven. It's not like you're going to stand at the pearly gates and Peter's going to be like, okay, Baptists are over here. Pentecostals are over there. Calvary chapels, you guys are over here. No, no, no. It's just Jesus. It's Jesus. And we can rally around Jesus. We can lift up the name of Jesus. We can glorify Jesus. We can worship Jesus. We have preferences. We have opinions. We have thoughts. And we can lay those down because we are gathered here for the sake of Jesus and his will on this earth because we want to see it come to pass. In Jesus' name, everybody agreed? Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for your, your beautiful bride that I've had the privilege of sharing your word to tonight. You love this gathering of your ecclesia, the called out ones. You love us so dearly. And you prayed for us. It's so incredible to think that on that night, in the moments just prior to your own suffering, you had us at the forefront of your mind. You were thinking about us. You were praying for us. Lord, I pray that we would become the answer to this prayer, that we would be unified. That we would be filled with a supernatural agape love that is foreign to this world, that causes those on the outside to, to stand back and to question and wonder and ask, what's the reason for the hope that lies within you? 
Because this world, everywhere I look, things look dark, they look bleak, things look hopeless, and I feel helpless. But I look at you Christians, and you have joy, and you have peace that defies comprehension. It it surpasses understanding. And, And Lord, I pray that we would be a people right here. Rancho Bernardo, California, that are so filled with heaven that it flows through us to the people in this community that you so desperately love, that you want to woo, that you want to draw. May they be drawn to you through us. Would you allow our lights to so shine before men that they see our good deeds and they give glory to our Father who's in heaven. Shake us up and then pour us out like salt on a a world to, to create hunger, to create thirst, Jesus, so that people fall in love with you, Lord. You've done everything for us, Lord. So we give everything back to you. Become our all in all. Not just our first among many. Be our one and only, Jesus. Be uppermost in our thoughts and in our affections. Take your rightful place on the throne of our hearts this evening as we worship you now in spirit and in truth, as we stand on the promises of your word, as we declare that we are one, one with you. And because of that, we can experience oneness with one another. In Jesus' name, we pray and ask all these things together. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.